Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined via Google Hangout again by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you doing? Falling apart bit by bit, Leslie. How about you? Oh, my friend, it's hard. I, I hate this. I miss you. I miss seeing you in person and, and having this be, being in the same room and, you know, having our energy flow off of each other and... I'm yeah. I'm looking at you right now. I can see your your Dodgers hat. Everyone needs to know that Leslie is wearing a Dodgers hat, which she never did when we were actually in the office recording. So uh, so this is a total improvement by that standard. Yeah, Dan, the Jufro is coming in. I usually get my hair cut every three weeks. It's been six. Yeah, there's yeah the Jufro is is alive and well. I'm at two and a half months and beginning to look a little bit scraggly, scruffy, and that's well, that's just where we all are, Leslie. Until we start shaving our collective heads. Uh, I've been debating it, so if anyone has tips, let me know. Well, let's get into headlines. And, you know, really quickly before we do, I just wanted to acknowledge our fearless leader, Matt Bellany. Obviously, some news hit this week. And without saying much, I just want to thank thank him for pushing us forward with this podcast. He's the one who named it. He's the one who, who recruited Dan and I to co-host this. So if you like TV's Top 5, thank Matt Bellany. And he's also been a uh, multi-time podcast guest. So, yes, friend, truly a friend of the five in the deepest sense possible. Yeah, I would put him at the number one friend of the five. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's uh, get into this week's headlines, Dan. Up first, Disney Plus is developing a gender flip reboot of Doogie Howser, MD, the show that made Neil Patrick Harris a household name. Uh, the streamer this week also reported that it has topped 50 million subscribers some five months after its launch. It's big numbers. Huzzah. Uh, over at Netflix, Lisa Kudrow has joined the cast of Steve Carell's comedy Space Force, playing his wife. You can also currently see her on Netflix's Feel Good, where she's giving a very, very, very good performance. So, yay. Yeah, and she was getting a lot of offers um, to star in broadcast pilots, too. And while she'll she will instead recur in Space Force, at least for now. So over at Fox, the network has renewed animated comedy Duncanville from Amy Poehler and Mike and Julie Scully for a second season. Meanwhile, the network has canceled Stephen Dorff drama Deputy after one season. That's a bit of a surprise considering they paid him a lot of money to star in that show. It was not an especially good show. But anyway, well, you have it. in other cancellation news, Comedy Central has axed lights out with David Spade after one season in what continues to be an absolute freak show of a time space for them. Uh, they they just churn through TV shows in that 1130 slot since the passing of the Colbert Report. So, oh, well. <laughs> 
Elsewhere, Stars has greenlit scripted drama series Black Mafia Family from exec producer 50 Cent. It's the network's fifth show from the rapper producer joining four other power spinoffs. And in executive news, Freeform President Tom Ashheim announced he'll depart the Disney-owned cable network this summer and will head to Warner Media and run Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, and Turner Classic Movies. Uh, any reflections on that somewhat large executive shift, Leslie? Well, they do not have a replacement. Um, I think this one took a lot of people at Freeform by surprise. He was expected to renew his his deal. He just hired um, an executive to replace Carrie Burke, who, of course, was tapped above him to go run the broadcast network over at ABC. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see who they, they hire to replace him and how they'll approach that, considering Disney is in the middle of layoffs and furloughs, given the state of the economy right now. So stay tuned. And finally, in sad but not really surprising news, all things considered, uh, our beloved ATX TV Festival is shifting to a virtual format this year, uh, with reunions for shows like Parenthood, Cougar Town, and Scrubs moved to the 2021 ATX TV Festival. This also means that our planned live podcast for the festival won't be happening either, but they have lots of very ambitious plans for the aforementioned virtual format, and we look forward to participating as much as we possibly can to help them out because we love us some ATX TV Festival. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. For our first segment this week, we're going to look at some of the early trends that have emerged at broadcast networks and how they're starting to handle the scheduling holes that are beginning to emerge. Leslie, what's up first that we can look forward to? Well, I think you've already started to see a lot of these emerge specials. So a lot of these like taped from home events, um, CBS did it with Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood and Fox did something with the iHeartRadio folks. Both seem to cut through a little bit. And, you know, in, in the bigger sense, these are cheap to produce and they're uplifting specials. And some of them have a, a, a fundraising component. We've seen a lot of action in that space this week. NBC had probably had the biggest announcement this week when they announced a massive cross-network global broadcast. So they're teaming with CBS and ABC, as well as all of their sibling networks to broadcast this massive fundraiser to help uh, address the fight against COVID-19. It's going to be hosted by Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, and Stephen Colbert. It's a two-hour special. It's curated by Lady Gaga. There's a ton of stars attached. ABC, meanwhile, is doing a star-studded tribute to legendary writer-director Gary Marshall. That, you know, has a lot of interviews that were done, you know, at the end of last year. So that'll be a nice look back on someone who had a huge impact on a lot of programs like Happy Days and Mork and Mindy and Laverne and Shirley that all aired on ABC and that in a little bit of an overshare. Happy Days is the reason that I love television. So I am very, very excited to see that. And and my childhood hero, Henry Winkler, is going to participate. So you know where I'll what I will be watching elsewhere. CBS, you know, as they look to, to figure out some holes on its schedule, they have some holes on Sunday nights. And what they're looking to do, at least in May, they're turning to new corporate sibling Paramount and bringing back its Sunday night movies in May with features including Titanic and Raiders of the Lost Ark, among others. That fills a void created by shortened seasons of shows like God Friended Me and a couple of other NCIS spinoffs. Meanwhile, CBS is also the first show to do a scripted episode virtually that is going to be produced from quarantine. This is the rookie drama All Rise, and the episode will be set 
amid the coronavirus pandemic, and it will use FaceTime, Zoom, and WebEx and other social media and online technology. That's slated to air May 4th. We should also add that NBC has just announced that Saturday Night Live will be returning this very weekend with social distancing related content that will include weekend update and original cast material and we have no idea what it will actually be but well we know one thing it won't be it won't have a host right now we know that this is a one-off it's unclear if this is going to be any kind of recurring thing that they're going to do remotely i think people are probably approaching this as a, as a trial run to see if they can pull it off and if it does i i have no doubt that it'll expand in return for multiple episodes and while it won't have a host I, I think we can pretty safely assume that there will be guests uh for example it would rather shock me if say scarlett johansson didn't just randomly pop up uh in the background of colin joe's skype screen so i i think that lorne michaels will have no trouble getting a couple of his famous friends and friends of snl to pop up on the show even if there is not a formal host so i'm actually really curious to see what that's going to look like yeah and i think we could all use uh some snls and i i particularly every weekend look look forward to weekend updates so i'm pretty pumped to see that so what else other things that networks are doing are things like acquired content you know i don't know if you remember the show but it aired on abc for more seasons than I think anyone remembers, but it was a show called Rookie Blue. That was a Canadian import. It, it often aired in the summer. That kind of show is what a lot of networks are starting to look for because those seasons are already produced. Um, they're inexpensive. And despite increased interest, the price tags on these has not gone up yet. So that could be a cheap and easy fix. But I think right now, you know, at least from the sources, the many, many sources that I spoke with, a lot of these networks are proceeding as if production on freshman shows and um, returning shows will will pick up in July, which would keep things on track for a September launch. At this point, you probably won't get new shows in October because when newly ordered shows usually go back into production, it's on episode two. But many will still, of course, have to produce the actual pilot. And that is if these networks do move forward with picking things up straight to series, which I'm hearing is a real possibility. There is no question that that whatever the fall is going to end up being, it is going to look very different from falls that you have known and loved. So, And that's if <laughs> there is a fall launch, which remains a very, very, very big if right Well, now. I mean, there will still be a fall. <laughs> there will still be a fall. Yes, I'm talking about the fall, the September TV season. So there, you look, if this production shut down, you know, if, if the quarantine goes through July, and into August and then into September. I mean, I read a Los Angeles Times story the other day that they're not expecting any kind of large gatherings in in Southern California until Thanksgiving. Yeah, no. I uh, don't, you know. Today, today, yeah. Bill Plaschke had a column in the L.A. Times uh, basically saying that it may be time to just accept that we're going to have to write off all remaining sports for 2020. And that probably extends to a lot of the things that we most enjoy and that give us the most pleasure. So, yes. Uh, so, OK, what else what else are you seeing as trends? Um, those are really the big trends. So it's acquired content. There's been some talk of repackaging old episodes. Um, ABC is doing this with General Hospital, where on Fridays they kind of are doing like a retro episode and they'll have cast members do a little like interview from home that they'll pack, kind of package it with. So it's basically kind of celebrating the, the past, but with a little intro to keep it current. I think that's a possibility. But look, right now, I think everything is on the table. There's been some chatter that broadcast networks are talking to their streaming counterparts 
with so like ABC possibly setting up meetings with Hulu and Disney Plus to see what's possible, that would be epic if that did happen. It would also require a lot of new deals and people to sign off on things that, you know, w there's no deal structure for for a streaming show to air on a broadcast network. Um, you know, look, CBS aired the first season of The Good Fight. I think what was that last year? That would be a paradigm shift and probably something affiliates would turn their nose up at. But given the opportunity to either have fresh content, even if it is from a competitor versus repeats, maybe this new content will rate higher than a repeat. I don't know. It, look, there's a lot of different variables. And, you know, I think right now everyone, if, if uh, everyone who works for broadcast network is scrambling. No, uh, sort of you can look back to also the writer's strike of 2007 or so. And you can remember, for example, that CBS aired the first season of Dexter in a very, very amusingly censored form. So oh, bad. Oh, it was so bad. So, hey, it's it's time to bring out a couple more seasons of, of Dexter. I bet you there are a lot of viewers who would love to see a censored version of the eighth season of Dexter. I bet you that is probably how it truly was meant to be seen. I'm a diehard. I was a diehard Dexter fan, Dan, and I don't even want to watch repeats of Dexter. We had the whole series on on DVD, and and I think got rid of it at a garage sale recently. But but yeah, yeah I think I think it'll pass. it'll be interesting, especially if it's edited. It, well, you know, there's a lot of language there, and but apparently that was all <laughs> that they edited back in the day. I mean, there was very little editing for the violence. It was a couple of the obscenities. So. Who knows? We'll see. But basically, everyone is just doing their best to keep the lights on. I saw that NBC Sports Network is airing a lot of Olympics highlights, 100 plus hours of Olympics highlights, basically in place of, you know, the actual Olympics uh, this summer. And so that might be something that's fun to watch. And it's something that will take the place of our absent sports, because otherwise it's just waiting for like ESPN to throw together the frequently mentioned horse tournament or something. And, you know, I don't know how hard up we collectively are or will become for sports related programming, but the answer could very well be a lot and very soon. So people are just doing the best they can. Yeah, and I think that's important to remember is, look, no one at these networks wants to air repeats or, you know, subpar quality content, but we are in an unprecedented scenario here. And, you know, I think it'd be great to commend everyone who works at these networks for keeping the lights on and finding unique ways to, to entertain a, a quarantined audience here. So hats off to them for doing the best that they can. And that, that that's a, you know, that was a working in a broadcast network was a hard job before all this, and it just got incredibly harder. Well, we're talking we're talking a lot about what's going to happen as people run out of content, but our next topic relates to the content that's currently still airing. Number 2. Up second, two beloved family comedies wrapped their impressive runs this week. On Wednesday, ABC bid farewell to five-time Emmy-winning comedy Modern Family after an impressive 11 seasons and 250 episodes. Over on Pop TV on Tuesday, they bid farewell to Schitt's Creek after six seasons. Dan, as a critic, what did you think of both finales? They were both they were both good finales. That's the first and most important thing. I mean, we we do not have a How I Met Your Mother finale in this particular group or a Dexter finale, depending on uh, what you want to talk about. Uh, Schitt's Creek is never a show that I have loved as much as some people. I thought without any question, the show got better, it got deeper, it got more emotional, and it did a lot of things very well. I just never got into the, oh, it's one of the best shows on TV thing, but that doesn't mean that I 
didn't watch every episode and often found it very pleasant. Basically, I watched the entire final season last weekend in preparation for the finale, and it was a good finale. Uh, I don't want to I'm going to try to sort of talk around spoiling things without necessarily spoiling everything. Uh, But, you know, if you want to go in totally cold, I might spoil some stuff. Uh, Basically, what I'm going to say is that the the subplot involving the massage in the finale of Schitt's Creek rubbed me, so to speak, so very much the wrong way and seemed so undiscussed and underqualified that it really threw me for a loop and kind of knocked me out of 10 or 15 minutes of the show because I kept thinking, surely they're going to discuss this with the seriousness that it actually deserves. And instead, it was just a cheap plot line and a cheap punchline. And I think it didn't feel right to me in that respect. But it was still a very emotional finale. Really, the last three or four episodes of the Schitt's Creek season were all about people crying and hugging each other. And I thought it did really, really well. The finale had had great moments with a lot of the supporting characters. Uh, I thought that a lot of the stuff with Twyla was very, very surprisingly emotional because that's not a character I've ever found particularly emotional previously. And then suddenly she was making me tear up. Uh, there, there was a lot of good, solid emotional stuff. It was very much a, this is the finale that we want to do. This is how we want to leave these characters, et cetera, et cetera. But I hear that there is at least vague, loose discussion surrounding spinoff type stuff. I don't think so. Um, our great uh, contributor, the great and wonderful and friend of the five, Gene Bentley, had a terrific interview with Dan Levy. And uh, the quote that I'll pull from that is, Quote, the idea of reopening anything anytime soon is not necessarily going to happen because I think we need time and space. So I wouldn't put it out there that there's a spinoff in the works or that that's going to happen anytime soon. Further complicating that, of course, is that Dan signed an overall deal with ABC Studios. So now you have competing interests. So considering the money that ABC Studios paid him, it's I would be shocked if the, his first project is going to be something that's outside of that deal. And also keeping in mind that Uh, As we've discussed on the podcast before, Pop is steering away from the original comedy series games. So it would be sort of funny if they were to make this big shift in programming strategy and then be like, oh, yeah, well, then then here's once more back to Schitt's Creek. Uh, Also, the last couple episodes had several had had many running jokes about Moira's very successful soap opera and it getting rebooted and many people joking about how reboots are never satisfying. So I I think that covered a lot of the what is or is not (laughs) going to happen with this show in the future. But also, I do think that there is still room for returning to this if anyone decides it's professionally necessary. And five to 10 years. So we'll see. I thought, I thought it was a good finale. I laughed. I I had some emotional stuff. There was just that plot line that, that caused me unease. And even though it kind of fit with some of the tone of the show, it didn't to me fit with the tone of the finale. And so it knocked me out a little bit. So yeah, that was, what, what about modern families, Anne? I thought it was, I thought it was a good solid finale and a good solid ending to what has been a solid season. We mentioned that Last week, I, I talked a bit about how really erratic the show was in its last five or even six years and how, for me at least, the 
consistency was such a major problem that it went from being you were watching for the three or four episodes per season that really landed to watching for the one or two episodes. And then I think there was a season a year or two ago where really there wasn't a single episode that for me felt like it hit. This season really was fairly solid. And I think probably if people checked out, they could probably check back in and feel like a lot of what they liked about the show was in the final season and a lot about what they liked about the show was in the finale, which was heavy on emotional moments. But also it was really funny in a lot of in a lot of places. So I, I thought it was a good finale. I thought it left several of the characters in interesting places and places they deserved to go. And yeah, you had a uh, a conversation with Christopher Lloyd, the co-creator who did not appear on our podcast. So uh, what did you glean from that conversation? Well, I actually spoke with both co-creators, Steve Levitan and Christopher Lloyd separately. And what I basically gleaned from that is I think there are some conversations happening about a potential spinoff, but, you know, there's obviously a lot of pressure to make sure that that's great and stands on its own. I wouldn't expect to see every single cast member back. But the way that the finale ended without spoiling everything specifically a lot of people left the nest. And I think, you know, that was a, an interesting way to do it. I mean, there was no big time jump. Um, this is something that that both co-creators talked a lot about uh, avoiding. And, you know, the way that, you know, the, the last thing that they did was, you know, well, Phil and Claire leave a light on. And I think that's what ABC is doing when it comes to spinoffs. Um, both guys, it sounds like uh, Chris Lloyd may be more interested in returning to this than Steve Levitan. Steve just signed a big overall deal with 20th Century Fox TV, which is now, of course, owned by Disney, and he's working on a couple of different projects. Chris Lloyd, too, is kicking around a couple different things, as well as a possible return to the world of Modern Family. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a good finale, and I, I really enjoyed the way that they found a way to to kind of keep it on brand. No, there it was. It was a finale that did a lot of what the show did best over the years, and it was a reminder of how good many of the cast members were. Because I thought a lot of the the cast members had just great showcase moments. I thought, without any question, Ed O'Neill was the the star of the finale, and I thought he was great as he was throughout the entire show. But lots of people just had good... Mo Sarah Hyland made me laugh three or four times in the finale, and I've always thought that the sh that she was a little underrated on the show, and I thought she was great. There, there was a lot of good stuff in the finale, and I would say... I love her dynamic with the kid that plays Dylan. Um, <laughs> he's, I also just love that actor. He's just really funny, and I can't, of course, remember his name right now, but uh, just he's always been kind of like this really fun scene stealer, and um, you know, Chris Levitan told me a couple of jokes that didn't make it in, and there was a really, really good one that included Dylan. And I, I don't want to spoil it here, but I'm, I'm hoping when they put something out, there'll be kind of some deleted scenes. So there's no question that the Haley and Dylan raising twins spinoff is so much the obvious hypothetical spinoff. I don't know if it would necessarily work, even with the. Uh, periodic guest appearances from Ty Burrell or Julie Bowen, but I, I would be curious to watch it. I definitely don't need it immediately. I, you know, I, I stuck with Modern Family for its entire run. I watched every episode, even when I was basically half ignoring them because they were really a mess. But they righted the ship towards the end. I would be perfectly happy to let that be its legacy, at least for a couple years. Yeah, I, I'm the same, Dan. I've watched every single episode, even, you know, sometimes when they're in the background and there's, you know, uh, when I've been working with, you know, 
focus writing or prepping a podcast with the episodes on in the background. But yeah, I, I thought it was a fun ending. And I really not that again, not that I'm a critic. I really kind of found Mitch and Cam's ending to be uh, very surprising. And that's the world that I would like to see without spoiling. I think that much. I think that would be a viable spinoff concept to be sure i can understand where the amusement would come out of that concept yeah it's basically a fish out of water story yeah totally and a totally interesting fish out of water story not one that necessarily we've seen endlessly but give it a year or two and then we can revisit all of that <laughs> yeah and if you'd like to hear more from steve levitan please go back and check out our september 27th interview with him about why the time was right to wrap it up and what he's kicking around doing next number three up third, it's time for another mailbag segment. As a reminder, we're going to be answering more of your questions on the show, given that, well, the state of breaking TV news has slowed considerably, at least for the time being. So if you have questions, please hit us up at TV's top five. That's the number five at THR.com. Our first question this week comes from Taryn, who would like recommendations about Passover themed episodes of TV. And yes, Taryn, we do agree. If the Roys from Succession were Jewish, they would have a spectacular Seder. Dan, what do you got? It should be noted that in honor of Passover, we are doing four questions this week from the mailbag, just to save you guys the trouble of counting. Uh, so yes, um, <laughs> this, this is not a, a holiday that shows have been overly invested in, but it still is a holiday that has some examples of good programming addressing it. I, you know, for me, even though I was not age appropriate enough for it, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind when I talk about Passover episodes is always the Rugrats Passover episode, because it was just such an amusing and random and rather wonderful thing for that animated show to do, to do basically a Ten Commandments takeoff. Uh, so yeah, when you, when you talk to me about TV shows that have done Passover episodes, Rugrats comes first. And that's even though a lot of other animated shows have kind of touched on it. Family Guy did something in that vein. I don't particularly remember it being funny, uh, but that would be par for the course for Family Guy. But yeah, so who else has done good episodes tied to Passover Sports Night? Had a pretty good one uh, doing a Seder in the workplace, which always resonated with me because it reminded me of the college newspaper Seder that we all did together that Chabad helped sponsor for us back when I was at Penn. So that was a fun thing. Basically, the OC touched on every imaginable holiday and every imaginable religious holiday. So there was definitely Seder-related content uh, there. If you go back to the episode The Nana, which uh, featured Linda Lavin and was a classic episode of The O.C. And now I would kind of like to go back and rewatch the entirety of The O.C., but ain't nobody got time for that. I just binged The O.C. for the first time, Dan, uh, late last year. I had never seen it, and she was that was a great episode. Uh, no, Linda Lavin was great, and, and really and truly, that was a show and, that and did— And it was great on Brockmire. Absolutely. No, and that's, and that's a show that all— <laughs> You just want to keep reminding us that you're watching and loving Brockmire, but no, actually, Linda Lavin was great on her Brockmire turn, so no question about that. Uh, the Gossip Girl, so really, basically, Josh Schwartz likes to bring uh, satyrs into his TV show. Was there not one on Chuck Josh? Come on. 
speaking of former podcast guests. Uh, so yeah, Gossip Girl had the episode Seder Anything, which uh, which featured Wallace Shawn. Uh, and, you know, anytime you get Wallace Shawn doing Seder content. So yeah, those, those are a few of them. And then, of course, everybody should just be going on demand and uh, watching the Adam Sandler feature film Uncut Gems if they want high-quality Passover slash sports gambling slash drug addiction related content. Uh, Leslie is giving that one a thumbs down, but as she likes to say, she's not a critic. Uh, but I also understand that a lot of people not going to be a fan of Uncut Gems, but other people totally will be. <laughs> I couldn't get through it, Dan. I, we had it on screener and we and just turn it off halfway through. I know it is, you're incredibly disappointed. Don't I'm not in, too hard. Okay? I'm not incredibly disappointed. It is absolutely a patience testing movie. I would say it is a patient patience testing movie by intent. So I, I think it is a movie that wants to wear you out as much as possible. And I would say that if that's its intent, it succeeds admirably. So let's mission get... accomplished. Yeah. Did the Goldbergs ever do a Passover episode? I'm trying to remember. No, the Goldbergs. Um, they struggled the... to do a Hanukkah episode. Yeah, let's let's know, be honest. That's a show that doesn't really, you know, get to be as Jewish as it wants to. I would say actually it probably is as Jewish as it wants to be, which is not particularly. And it's uh, I've always, in fact, wanted that show to be more Jewish and for whatever reason. So let's get to our next question. It comes from Owen in Northern Ireland. Excellent. Always happy to have listeners worldwide. And Owen would like to know about the status of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer update that we mentioned many, many moons ago and that no one has mentioned for a long time subsequently. What up with that, Leslie? Yeah, this is still in development. Um, you know, look, when the news broke a few years ago, and it does feel like many, many lifetimes ago, there was no script. There was a pitch for it and they hired a writer and that triggered people like me to re report this as something that was in development. And look, you know, this is an iconic show uh, and an important one to a lot of people. It's the, the show that got me writing about television for the first time. Look at this episode, Dan. I've talked about the show that made me fall in love and the show that got me to write about TV. But people really want this script to be right. As I understand it, it's still in the works. People are making sure that the script is good and then... You know, look, it's something that is set up at 20th Century Fox Television, which, of course, is now owned by Disney. Considering the state of the TV economy right now, I think I would be shocked if that landed somewhere outside of the, the Disney ecosystem. So I think you can make of that what you will. There's only a handful of platforms that are owned by Disney that could possibly pull off a, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer update. And that's just my educated guess. But yeah, so the update is that, well, there is no update. I just checked in on this, um, I, I want to say December, maybe January. That was 75 years ago, Leslie. I know, 75 you're right, you're right. years ago. Yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah. But look, and no one's, you know, I think you, you'd be hard-pressed to find a bigger Buffy fan on this show anyway than me. <laughs> so I'm very excited to see a, a new Buffy. So, um yeah, I'm, I'm. This is one that I, I continue to monitor. Because, it, should, it should be you know, noted give, that I am, give me Buffy. That I am totally a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. So while Leslie may in fact be the biggest Buffy the Vampire Slayer on the podcast, it's not by like such a wild margin or anything. It's it's just you know I'll let you have that though. <laughs> yeah. Also, it, now I really really just want to watch the pilot again. I mean that was a great pilot. Okay, you do you do that. I'll watch the OC. Speaking of great pilots. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, both really good pilots. You know, this is something my wife and I have actually been talking about doing is really because we um, we rewatched the Brooklyn Nine-Nine pilot the other night. And it was just it was so great because you kind of see where the scenes from the opening theme song and the credits come from. 
And it got us thinking like, why don't we just do like a pilot rewatch, you know? And some of my favorite pilots, like I think the Glee pilot still stands up, Parenthood, Friday Night Lights. I mean, I'm uh, staying on brand here, but yeah, it's just, just an idea that we've been talking about. A long, a long time ago on a podcast far, far away, uh, Alan Sepinwall and I spent a full summer doing that and it was a, a fun exercise that we got to do. I bow before both of you, my friend. <laughs> Let's go to our next question. Next up, Kelly emails and asks a question I've actually always wondered about, Dan. And speaking of your time with Alan, when you and your peers uh, saddle up to the bar at an industry event or when you used to do that, when it was safe to straddle up to a bar or when there were industry events, what do you guys complain about? As our listener Kelly put it, what does trash talking among TV critics sound like? Well, I mean, they're your peers, too, Leslie, and you know what the conversations sound like. So, you know, like in terms of what we complain about, we complain about. I don't know, same banal shit we complain about on on this podcast. So we complain about we complain There's about There's too much TV, Dan. We complain about that. We complain about uh which network screener sites do and don't work. We complain about the horrible uh, you know, ungainly imposition of of double authentication screener sites. There, there's a lot of who has bad screener sites, who gives fewer screeners, uh that you know, there's this it's a lot of nuts and bolts, really nerdy parochial stuff. Uh, there's sort of this idea that there's a critical hive mind out there. And I don't think, and I always push back against that idea. But on the other hand, I think we all have a pretty good idea of who the outliers are in certain critical conversations slash opinions. So there are more than a few people who are always happy to chide me for not liking Seinfeld. And I have I have made my peace with the mockery that I get for that. And that's fine to mention Alan Sepinwall again. Uh, you know, if you follow us on Twitter, you know that I am prone to making fun of his not liking of succession. Uh, but, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a peer pressure goading kind of thing. Just a it's fun, actually, sometimes when you're an outlier on dot, 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 or dot, 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 when you just simply don't get that one show or those two shows that other people seem to to love, whether it's Succession, whether it's Seinfeld, uh, whether, I don't know, whether you were the person in the first season of Game of Thrones who didn't like that show and then got to be all smug when everyone at the end of that show's run was talking about how, I believe the word we've used uh, is divisive that final season was. So, or like last night when I got mildly lit up on Twitter for not liking Field of Dreams. Which is both sad, but I also understand because it it ultimately ends up being much more of a dude bro fathers and sons baseball movie than just a baseball movie. And, and so if what you're looking for in it is a baseball movie, it's got many flaws. If what you're looking for in it is a movie that will make you cry when a father and son play catch at the end it definitely pulls that off. I mean, as a baseball... And if you're looking for just a hokey baseball movie that's kind of meh. What's sure. wrong with hokey? I mean, come on. Anyway, look, don't get me wrong. I, for example, have very little use for the Sandlot. Uh, you know, and hey, I, and I know on. some people love the Sandlot. It's it's simply not a movie that does anything for me. Uh, and, and, and shout out to my wife who is deathly afraid of the Beast and refuses to rewatch the Sandlot with me. 
Um, maybe, maybe you should spend <laughs> the next three to four months of our quarantine gradually easing her along on that. No, it's look, it, honestly, we, it's, it's the same as shop talk at any profession. We, we complain about our tools. We complain about the way that we have to do our job in a modern ecosystem where there's much too much content. I would say that if you were to get us together in a room right now as critics, we could probably spend several hours making fun of Quibi, uh, and that would probably be the thing that we would do. So, no, it, it varies. And I look forward to someday actually being back in a room, well, with other human beings, but also with our peers. We will see when that happens. So, OK, that would be our third question. So let's get to our fourth question. Manish Tana, Halayla Hazem, Mikol Hamim. Leslie? I don't know what that means. I'm a terrible Jew. I'm a Jew in name and nose only, my friend. I'm sorry. <sighs> okay, wrapping up, listener Eric emails and would like to know what streamers and networks get for their deal when they sign a showrunner to an overall deal. Eric writes, I understand sometimes it may include showrunners catalog of past shows, but for example, in the case of a $300 million deal for Ryan Murphy, does the $300 million go towards the production costs of the shows? Does it cover his partners and staff? Or is Ryan Murphy putting the $300 million in his bank account and then Netflix is still paying all other costs? Leslie? I mean, there's no real easy answer to this other than each deal is completely different. You know, when Shonda Rhimes signed, a, you know, then a hundred million dollar deal with Netflix, it turned a lot of heads and, of course, set a kind of a template for these big nine figure deals. And Shonda's deal, for example, is structured where she bid on herself. So she has a greater portion of the show's profit and Ryan's deal is big because, he, you know, at Netflix did buy out the back end on a lot of his catalog shows. But everything is structured differently. Like Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan signed with Amazon and part of their deal that was inflated included a payout from HBO for additional seasons of Westworld. So that all elevates these different deals. Dick Wolf's deal included payouts for other straight-to-series orders. And that includes the Chris Maloney Law & Order Special Victims Unit spinoff. That just got announced. So that's included in that deal. So, I mean, really everything's different. But, you know, for Ryan's, for example, I think most of these deals do include overhead for these production companies. Ryan Murphy has his company. He has a head of development. He has different executives and, and office space. The same for Shondaland. You know, it, it pays to support Betsy Beers, who, who co-runs that company alongside Shonda and their entire staff and office space within Netflix. So every deal is different. Sometimes, you know, I, I don't believe many of them include production costs because sometimes you don't really know at the time that you sign the deal what the shows are going to be and what the budgets are going to be. So, yeah, e each thing is different. But, you know, a lot of showrunners like Shauna will bet on themselves and maybe take back end profit points. Others like Ryan, like a, a, a cash payout and don't want to have to deal with it. Greg Berlanti, for example, his deal is high because he's got rid of the points on a lot of the CW superhero shows. So they didn't have to keep paying him on that. So, yeah, it, everything's different. But, yeah, there's just a lot of money on the table. And guess what, kids? We will talk much, much more about the overall deal space in the weeks to come. We will? Sure. We always do. Yeah. That's a frequent topic. You're right. It non is a frequent topic. I do, non I do love talking about overall deals. Yeah. It, I, I mean, listen, you know, I, I am a development junkie. I love understanding how the sausage gets made in this case. And oh, it all starts with overall deals and the competition for different things. So, yeah, you know, that is a big 
part of the business. It's also it's also news, and we are largely a yeah. news podcast. And probably when we get back to talking more regularly about the overall deal space, that will be a sign that we are getting back to something more accurately resembling normal. So I look forward. Oh, to write about overall deals again. <sighs> <sighs> Well, until then, please continue to send your TV questions to us at TV's Top 5. That's the number 5 at THR.com. Or you can find us on Twitter and send us your questions there. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. And before we get into things, just a note, this interview was recorded in late February. So if you don't hear us talk about coronavirus or quarantine, that's why. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. Our guest this week is Davi Waller, the creator of of the star-studded FX on Hulu limited series, Mrs. America. The nine-episode limited series explores the efforts to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Kate Blanchett stars as conservative activist Phyllis Schlafly, with Rose Byrne playing feminist icon Gloria Steinem, Tracy Ullman as Betty Friedan, etc., etc. Waller started her career as a writer on Desperate Housewives and Eli Stone before joining AMC's Mad Men and... One of my favorites, Halt and Catch Fire. Welcome to the podcast, Avi. Thank you. It's great to be here. So the first question, obviously, that we need to ask is when you started working on this, did you have any way of conceiving that by the time it actually came out that the ERA would actually be back in the conversation again in the way that it has become? I literally never occurred to me that that could happen having, you know, with 40 years of nothing happening. I mean, from 1982 to 2017, it was completely dormant. And in fact, we'd have conversations in the writer's room. How are we going to get people to understand what the Equal Rights Amendment is and this crazy ratification process, which is not intuitive at all, without it sounding pipey? So I'm just so grateful that now when people tune into our show, it'll be very clear what is happening. But on the other hand, with that, so much is happening that there's the possibility that well, I, mean, I guess probably nothing moves that fast, but there's the possibility the news cycle could actually end, say, next week. And, and it we could sit be over. here. We should note that we sit here. It's the end of February as we record this. So the news cycle, as we've seen, moves very quickly. So is, is there any part of you where you're saying, OK, slow down, slow down. You want to hit a crescendo right around <laughs> the middle of April, please. Thank you. Yes. In fact, I, I should probably write some letters to Nancy Pelosi and members of the Senate <laughs> just to ask them if you could just slow down this process because we want to be able to take credit for whatever's happening. Um, you know, no, it's true. You can't you can't predict those things. But I'm just glad that the conversation is in the news and that people are talking about it and thinking about it. That to me is very exciting. So I think it'll just add to whatever they get out of the series. Let's go back to the development 
process. I've heard through the grapevine that this show has been in the works since before Trump was elected in 2016. Sadly, yes. That's remarkable. Can you walk walk us through what the what it was like, you know, when when like the origins of this? When did you first write? Did you, did you write it on spec? What was the pitch? Talk us through it. So um, one of our non-writing producers who I'd worked with on a pilot for AMC had a meeting with me and, you know, producers are always pitching you different ideas. And one of the ideas she pitched was Phyllis Schlafly's campaign against the Equal Rights Amendment. This was back in 2015. And I'd been always interested in writing a series about politics. I was looking for the right concept to work off of. And this seemed like a great way in to talk about this moment in time, the women's movement, anti-heroes. So I think I pitched it to FX at the end of 2015, and I started working on the pilot in early 2016. And I remember I was writing a draft of the pilot November 2016. And we, you know, when we pitched it, we thought, oh, this will be a really ironic series if Hillary Clinton's president. You know, now that we have a first female president, let's look at one of the biggest anti-feminists in history. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> we did not get the last laugh. So uh, right after the election, I really had to look at the series and think, well, is this still about what I pitched or is it about something else? And really pivoted the development of the series to be about something much broader. Well, the the Kings have talked about how the good fight started off as, okay, Christine Baranski's character is going to be pleased because she loves Hillary Clinton and Hillary's going to be elected and yay. And then suddenly the entire series became this darker, more miserable, angry thing. How do would you sort of describe how the tone shifted because of the tone of your life in the world? <laughs> You're right. Like The Good Fight, I think the tone of the series did take on a a darker, more of a cautionary tale than an ironic celebration of where we are. That said, the tone still has the same humor and mischief and joy that I like to bring to anything I write. But I do, I think for the better, because I think it made it, actually think it made the series more relevant than it had been when we sold it. Now the series really feels like it speaks to today. And once Trump was elected and we had the Women's March and this renaissance, I think, of the women's movement, this next wave, it really allowed us to think about, well, what were the conversations that were happening in the 70s that are happening today and really right to today, which I think just makes the series more interesting to watch. But the decision to focus on a conservative to as the the audience's entry point, and yes, this conservative, Phyllis Schlafly, is played by Kate Blanchett. But can you talk about the decision to do that as a point of entry for the show? And, you know, especially at, at this point in time, I mean, for me, I've seen... I've seen the first two episodes and I'm obviously riveted as a women's studies minor. I'm riveted <laughs> by the fact that you have Rose Byrne as Gloria Steinem and she's terrific. And I want to I want to be in that world. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know, obviously I keep I, pulling you into the other world. Yeah, and I'm being pulled in the other one. And I'm like, I don't want to live in that world. I want to live in this. World. You know, so can you talk a little bit about the about that decision? I mean, partly came from our producer, you know, pitching me Phyllis Schlafly and the Equal Rights Amendment and not Gloria Steinem and the Equal Rights Amendment. And that exciting me as a writer, because you're always looking for something challenging to write. And it is so challenging to try to get inside the head of a woman that whose entire ideology and raison d'etre is opposed to everything you believe in. And so that just excited me. And I think it was at a time where we had a lot of male antiheroes on TV, not a lot of female antiheroes. And so that was a fun challenge for me. And I also think we, there have been a lot of documentaries and a lot of books written about the women's movement And we wanted to do something a little more fresh and a little different. And if I can get you to see 
this woman differently than maybe you did when, because I also learned about Phyllis Schlafly in a women's studies class. If I could get to change your perspective on it, I don't think we do ourselves any favors by painting our enemies as, you know, one-dimensional monsters. I think it behooves us to humanize them because I wanted to understand her appeal because she did have tremendous appeal. I want to take that then from the opposite perspective, that if you're focusing on Phyllis Schlafly, did you need the other side? You know, did you at any point consider we're going to stay with her the entire time? We And I was, I was asked that by the network. I really felt strongly that I did not want to tell the story entirely from her point of view. What interested me was, and this is the way the series is structured, was to tell the story from multiple point of views. One of the great things about the women's movement is you had a lot of feminist leaders and they each brought a unique perspective and I wanted to spend time in each of their perspectives. So in a way, I I didn't want it to be this binary thing where you have the hero and the anti-hero. To me, I wanted to be compassionate towards all of them. I wanted to humanize all of them. And I, especially I tend to see our feminist leaders as, you know, they're like superheroes, but I thought, well, what's human about them? Where are they messy? Where are they like us? Where are they relatable? I didn't want to, in the same way, I didn't want to paint Phyllis as this very one-dimensional monster. I also didn't want to paint the feminists as perfect because they weren't. And I think that's, that's where those complexities just make for a richer landscape to play. And you, and you have nine episodes and if memory serves yeah. and it doesn't always, um, <laughs> each episode is named after a different that's woman right. in history. And a different character that we're following. So I I like to think of each episode. So the first episode is Phyllis. The second episode is Gloria. The third episode, we focus on Shirley Chisholm. The fourth episode, we're now in the perspective of Betty Friedan. So it's almost like each character has their moment. And then in every other episode, they're, they're still there, but in the background. And I love this idea of each of them having like their own aria. You might think Betty is like a thorn in the side and a very annoying character in the first three episodes because she's antagonistic to Gloria and Bella. And then suddenly episode four, you get to go home with her. Maybe that shifts how you see her. And when did Kate Blanchett become available and what were those conversations like? So I had written uh, the first two episodes, which you saw, and also a format for the series. And we really felt that a show like this hinges on having the right person right actor in the lead. It's such a difficult character to play. And I think it was Coco Francini, one of our producers, idea to go to Kate um, with it. And we sent the two scripts to her. Of course, it was like, it's a long shot. You know, you send it to her and you're just expecting a no. And to my great delight and surprise, she responded pretty quickly that she was interested in this character and she was interested in playing Phyllis Schlafly. So that was 2018. We brought her in. And once Kate signs on, I mean... I mean that you and that it, the TV, green light is not far behind. Yeah, and I mean in, in TV, we should clarify too. A lot of you know pilots and and limited series go out to. They always have the first offer is always someone who's like the ultimate, who you know the one you can't not, get exactly the one you can't can't. And and ninety nine point nine percent of the time, it's like a quick no, and then it, people move on in casting to like the you know the, the the rest of the people on the list, and it's so rare. So just to, to we didn't know what to do with ourselves. Yeah. I mean, truly, I think I think I screamed on the phone. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. And then even when we met, I'm like, are you sure you read the right script? Are you sure you're responding to Phyllis Schlafly? Um, but what was really amazing that Kate didn't just come on to play Phyllis Schlafly. She came on as a producer. She's been involved in every step of the way from script phase all the way through post-production, looking at every cut, giving her notes. So she's been so invaluable. I mean, I think we always think of her as the brilliant actress she is, but she's also quite a brilliant producer. What sense did you get in terms of what she latched onto about the character and what she felt was her point of entry for her? 
again, you know, I never want to speak for her. <laughs> that's the surefire way to get yourself in trouble. But what she did say to me, I think she was really like me. I think she was interested in the appeal of Phil Schlafly because Phil Schlafly raised an army of conservative, politically conservative women who weren't organized prior to her getting them going. And I think she was also very fascinated by what what was it about this woman that appealed to them? I think the complexity, there's so many inner contradictions in Phyllis Schlafly. I think she that's a challenge for an actor. And I think her biography, we were both very attracted to the fact that she did not start out in the family value space. Um, in fact, family values probably didn't, you know, exist as a as a concept in 1970, that she was this brilliant uh, Harvard-educated defense strategist who wanted to play in the boys club and work at the Pentagon probably. And what made her pivot? What makes someone shift? I think she, we were both really attracted to that. So the rest of the cast is equally impressive. So I was just going to say. <laughs> Uzo Aduba, Sarah Amazing. Paulson, one of my all-time favorites, Tracy Ullman. We could not get over every time another actor signed on, we, we our jaws dropped. We would be in the writer's room and we'd say, you know, it'd be perfect to play Jill's, Jill Ruckel's house, who is a Republican feminist, who um, episode six features. It's Liz Banks would be the perfect person to play her. <laughs> but of course, so we just kept saying Liz Banks, Liz Banks. And then we said, well, should we ask her? She's so amazing and busy and directing Charlie's Angels. And then she would, she agreed to do it. We just, we just felt so blessed. It, it really is every writer's dream to have this cast. Well, what was maybe some of the hardest parts about assembling this cast, whether it be getting deals to close or matching the right people to play the right characters. Honestly, schedule when you have this cast yeah, and saying, you're shooting yeah. in Toronto and you're trying to get them all in big group scenes. We had a, we have one scene where literally almost the entire cast is in the scene and it was three in the morning. That is probably that makes everyone pull their hair out. Yeah. I mean, 3 a.m. Yeah. Well, yeah. OK. What does what is that day like when you actually get the Avengers all together. It, it is like getting the Avengers together. I, I I kept saying, I feel like, and although I always confuse all my metaphors, so I should probably shut up and not go too deep down this rabbit hole. What really struck me was uh, the sisterhood on set. I know it sounds, sounds so cheesy, but it really is true. All of our cast, they bonded. They, it was like summer camp up in Toronto, they told me. And they the generosity, the lack of ego was truly, truly remarkable. I, I, I just have to say that it was a joy. There was not one. The person complaining the most at three in the morning was probably me, <laughs> to be honest. And presumably this is an instance where the structure that you set out actually really helps you because you know that you can tell people, OK, this is the week that we're going to need you to be focused and then we might need a day or two here. How, how did you coordinate that? It worked out really well by, ha- by being able to say, for instance, to, to Liz that, OK, episode six, we're going to need you a lot. But prior to that, maybe it'll be a scene here, a scene there, so we could really work with your schedule. So it did allow us, and I think this is one of the great things about limited series in general, is that you can get an actor who doesn't have time for an ongoing series to commit because the timing isn't that much. Or it's between projects, yeah. Or it's between projects, and they can kind of fit you in. It also is great. You know, we sent out research packets of their real-life character. I'm such a nerd. So we sent out research packets to the cast of their characters, and they came to set having gone so deep into their real life historical counterpart, and they just brought so much knowledge with them. And so I think it allows you in a big ensemble to really hone in on like, th- who, who am I playing? And because these are real life characters, to, to really 
bring this expertise that no one else in the cast has about your particular character. And they all would come in like, I read that Jill said this, and I read that Gloria said this. And did you know that Gloria liked to nap anywhere? Can we put that in the script? And it that that kind of collaboration is what makes the show really fun. To okay, do. so you're accepting if someone comes in and says that, and you're not the person who goes, yeah, I did research, and there are no naps in my script. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what writer has not said no? It's um, to, I I really believe a gr- I will take a great note from anyone and anywhere, and I love it if someone. And I'm reading about all these characters, but like, you know, Kate definitely knew more about Phyllis by the end of this than I did because she just went so deep. So I I lean on them to bring me these kind of nuggets. And we actually put Gloria napping, you know, on a desk in the middle of the day into the episode because it's such a great, it's like a great character moment that that specificity is what makes that character, what gets you invested in the character. So I, I love when someone comes to me. So you mentioned now that you had research packets for for all the cast members, but God, can you talk a little really bit about... Really outing myself as such a nerd. No, I mean, I kind of... Look, I mean, this is what I do for... Excuse for, me. You know, also, you did, you did a nine-episode uh, <laughs> yeah. miniseries about the kidding? ERA. Who what are we kidding? talking about? Yeah. Yeah. The ERA is like the height <laughs> of being a historical nerd. Yeah. But can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you did to prepare for writing these scripts and, and the research, and, and especially considering that this has been in the works for five years? So... So I, I try to be optimistic and looking at the long development process, the upside was I had time to read. You know, the funny thing about these women in the 70s, they all wrote books, literally every one of them and multiple books. So I had a researcher. We read every memoir and book and article. I'm also this this. This is, goes pretty deep. I became a subscriber to newspapers.com, and I spent many, many hours reading articles, interviews done with these women from the 1970s local newspapers because I really wanted to hear how they spoke at that time, which is very different than when you write a memoir and you're looking back. I wanted that unfiltered. So I thought we read a lot. And what you do is you read a lot so that you have this you know, immersive and, and the breadth of knowledge. And then you have to throw it away and just say, okay, what are the interesting character arcs? What is what is emotional about the story? What's the human drama? Because if you just do the research and kind of write a, a chronology of events, it ends up feeling flat. It feels like Wikipedia. It feels like Wikipedia, exactly. Well, how about in terms of primary sources? Because many of the women are alive. So who did you reach out to? Who didn't you? Obviously, the ones who aren't with us, you probably didn't reach out to, but... I tried, though. <laughs> Who were you able to talk to or did you not want to do that? I did not want to talk to any of the women who lived through the time because I was choosing to write based on multiple sources. We did not. This show is not based on any one IP. It's based on multiple sources. And I felt if I talk to one of them, then I am you are bound to their point of view and their version of events. Whereas if you make it a policy, we're not going to speak to anyone. We're going to only look at the primary sources as written and we're going to interpret them then I think you have more flexibility with the kind of stories you're telling. Do the actors buy that when you say that? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I think as an actor, the instinct is to reach out if the person is alive for sure. And I think that's hard. But, you know, like Sarah Paulson said to me when she played Marsha Clark, she deliberately did not reach out to speak to her until afterwards because she didn't want that to, she wanted to be able to create Marsha Clark from her own experience and not be like swayed one way or try to do mimicry. And I think it worked brilliantly. So, I thought that perspective was was interesting, kind of lined up with how I thought about it. And Sarah, of course, and Marsha Clark have become fast friends. Yeah, they're fast following friends. That. So clearly, Marsha. Yeah, she brought her the, she her. Yeah, exactly. I think she brought her the Emmys. If she did. Are, yeah. Have you talked about or set up screenings for for any of the people who are depicted in the series now that you're done with it? You know, I, that's above my pay grade. I think I would have to ask FX because they're setting up all the screening. That's a great question. I actually don't know the answer to that. 
How about what would you ideally want to be done with this in terms of outreach screenings? What 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 ideally would be getting the way to get this out in the conversation? I think FX publicity team does a great job of this. We're having screenings in Washington. We're having our premiere party in New York. You know, my hope as the person behind this is that the women depicted in the series will approach it with an open mind. I think it must be terrifying to be depicted in cinema or television. I know I would be afraid to watch. And you have your point of view on events and possibly what's in the show is not how you remember it. So I would just, my hope is that when we reach out, they approach it with an open mind. And I I can really say that I wrote these characters and thought about these characters from a place of compassion and wanting to really understand them. This was not, I had no intention. I'm not interested in doing a hit job on anyone. I really approached them and tried to understand their psychology, like what makes them tick, what motivated them. And when they're in conflict, make it relatable because we've all been in those situations. We talked about how sort of the the current administration and the current political climate have done some promotional work for you guys, but you also had... The advantage or disadvantage of Phyllis Schlafly playing an off-screen role in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel last season. Everyone texted me about that. I had to take a look. That was, it's so funny because when we sold this to FX, no one had heard of Phyllis Schlafly. If they were under 50, like literally only my parents and my in-laws had heard of her. And now, I think after she died, there were a lot of, they're actually competing Phyllis Schlafly projects. And suddenly she was like in the ether, you know how these things go. And then suddenly she's on Mrs. Maisel. So they did some of the work for us. I do have to point out that she wasn't running for Congress in 1960, but that's my only note. <laughs> well, but the other thing that I would give you is the possibility to see the way people on that side of the political spectrum responded to the way that she was treated. And there was some backlash against the show on the idea that this was a hit job against her. Did you pay any attention to that? And did that help you get yourself prepared for what's coming when this premieres? That's a great question. I didn't pay too much attention to it because I think you you can make yourself crazy, to be honest. You know, you, ha- you have to make something with integrity, something that you can stand behind, and then you put it out there and you can't worry in advance how people are going to react. Because the truth is, there are going to be people on the right who hate this series. There are going to be people on the left who hate this series. And if everyone loved what I was putting out there, it's probably not very interesting. <laughs> so I think I always just go for interesting. I'd like, I'm glad that a conversation has started. That's all I have to say. About that. <laughs> yeah. I read, I read. I read a couple of the articles. Let me let me assure you. you the tell very me defi- what I should be worried about. Is. No, I'm just telling you the definition of insanity is reading a Breitbart column in 2020 valorizing Phyllis Schlafly. So if you if you really want to know a certain mindset, get ready for that. I, you know, I, I think any series that has this kind of polarizing topic is a bit of a Rorschach test for how people in this country are thinking about these things. So in that way, I think as a sociologist and political scientist amateur, it's interesting to me, but I think you're right. You drive yourself insane if you let it matter to you. You just have to let it wash over you and hope they don't have your your cell phone number. (laughs) In a larger sense, after viewers have seen all nine episodes, what do you ultimately hope the takeaway is? One of the reasons I was very interested in this area is because there's this pattern that after researching Phyllis Schlafly and her basically counter movement to the ERA, I saw this, there's this pattern of movement in this country. Every time we take a step forward, there's always a step backwards. There's always a backlash movement. Anytime there's been a progressive social movement in this country, there's always a counter revolution. And if we don't learn about those counter revolutions, if we only tell the story from the point of view of progress and the point of view of the heroes of the 
social movement, we won't understand how to defend ourselves against the counter-revolution. So uh, I hope once people get to the end of the series, they have a greater understanding of the context for how we progress as a society and are galvanized to not be complacent and to not think, oh, abortion became legal in 1973. We're okay now. We don't have to keep fighting. The fight continues. And that is my, my hope that when you get to the end of the series, you are galvanized to never letting up and never getting complacent. You know, and we do mention, obviously, the end of the series. It's it's called a limited series, but yet that didn't stop Big Little Lies uh, from coming back <laughs> from Fargo. season two. Or, I mean, an anthology. But, you know, my, my point is, is that a lot of these things can, in success, spawn other seasons. So in success, do you see a second season of Mrs. America? And what would that be if there was? To be perfectly honest, I am so superstitious that I think it's very bad luck to have an answer for that. So I, I truly haven't thought beyond season one. But for sure, in this world of and having spent a lot of time in this world of controversial political figures and constitutional amendments that are really an interesting area. And as a writer, there's always a season two of, of this. I don't know specifically what it would be. And, and obviously, it would be a different cast because... <laughs> Our cast has gone on to do many, many different things. But I think in this world, we, we've just begun to tell historical stories from the point of view of women and women of color. And so there's so much more to mine there. Yeah, it feels like it could be a good anthology. Did you hear that, John Langraff? <laughs> <laughs> well, but whenever you do something like this, you, you always know there's going to be a, a certain quibbling of, oh, they left out the contribution of dot, 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 left out this person's whatever. Do you already know who those people are? Are, who, who do you sort of wish you could have found a way to put into this story who didn't make it? I love that you asked that question. And it, it's something in the writer's room that we we really struggled with because once you decide Phyllis Schlafly is your entry point and the story, the spine of the series is going to be the battle of the Equal Rights Amendment, you are limited to the women who were involved in that particular battle. Now, that was mostly white feminist and something and, and liberal white feminist. And going in, one of the challenges for us as storytellers was how do we weave in the story of intersectional feminism? How do we tell the story of the Republican feminists, which is now a thing of the past? And do I wish we could have done more with that? Yes. There should be a spinoff series just on Flo Kennedy. She's an incredible person who was played by Niecy Nash in the series that should have her own series. Shirley Chisholm, there should be a biopic of her. Um, I hope the Viola Davis movie gets off the ground because she deserves her own movie. So my hope actually is that all these women that we didn't have time in the series to go very in depth, will have their own movies, will have their own TV series that this inspires. Yes. Yes to all of those things. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm getting a big yes across the table. Well, along those same lines, I have to ask the the dude question. How did you feel like I'm you- I'm glad it's you asking the dude question. It's, it Dan. seemed the most I was waiting for the dude question. Cro chromosomally, it seemed the most relevant. <laughs> chromosomally? Chromosomally. Not sure we've used wait, that last one on the week podcast you, before. Wait, you just it's, used ju juiceploitation for the Hunter's interview. Uh, and now what's this one? Say it again. Chromosomally. <laughs> this is me shaking my head. What, what I'm saying is, how did you decide how you wanted to approach the men in this story, whether you needed honestly to have them at all, and how sort of John Slattery's character, as Phil Schlafly's husband, ends up being kind of the representative dude. But then there are a lot who are on the fringes, but... You wanted to make sure it wasn't their story, which I totally appreciate. Could it have been nothing on that side of the equation at all? Well, given that these women are fighting either to preserve the patriarchy or smash the patriarchy, you definitely need someone representing the patriarchy. And I was very interested in the male characters, both the, the ones who are allies of these women, the ones who are antagonistic, and the ones who are, I would say, friendly antagonists. 
uh, particularly since we're going home with Phyllis and spending time in her home, I was really interested in her marriage to Fred Schlafly. John Slattery is incredible as Fred Schlafly. The two of them are so fascinating together. So that interested me. We also have James Marsden playing this character, Phil Crane, who to me represents what Phyllis might have been had she been a man. You know, he has an almost similar biography to her. He's an Illinois Republican right-wing congressman who cares about defense strategy. So that was a really interesting male character. But it's not about the men. And I, I think, you know, what I'm so used to seeing movies and television shows about women where the, it's all about romantic entanglements. It's all about who they're in love with and they're always fighting over men. And I, I and that's her, what defines them. Yeah. And that's what defines them. And particularly with the character of Gloria Steinem, she wasn't defined by men in her life. It's something that was an enigma to the women around her at the time that she had no interest in getting married. She didn't define herself by the men in her life, even though she was always in a relationship. So it was purposeful to have the men in her life not be the defining point of the story, but sort of be the way sometimes women are in a story centered on men. Yeah, it felt in one of the episodes that I watched, it felt like she almost was calling her boyfriend as like a booty call. <laughs> so it was kind of, I, I kind of love that. So. With Jay Alice. Yeah. <laughs> he was he, he was amazing in it. Yes, it was a bit of a 70s booty call. Yes, absolutely. In the larger scheme of things, Mrs. America is one of four FX shows that is moving to Hulu and launching exclusively on Hulu as part of an FX on Hulu. The great consternation uh, of, of my parents who don't have Hulu and don't understand why they have to get it now. I was like, well, I think that's the point of moving them to Hulu. Yes, absolutely. But to it's also part. Parents. I mean, we can, and we can go deep. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're, we are expanding this brand one family at a time. <laughs> and I mean, we can go considerably down a, a very like industry rabbit hole inside baseball about why the move makes sense and all that other stuff, which I'm sure we've done in, in a previous episode or, or three but in a, in the larger sense, what explanation did you get from FX executives about the move? And, and how do you feel about it, aside from the fact that your parents have to figure out how to watch it? <laughs> Except for the fact that my parents are complaining to me every day about all their other friends who also don't have Hulu. <laughs> it's like, um, you can all move. No, I did not tell them to mooch off of my Hulu account. I definitely did not say that. Hulu. <laughs> What we were told, we got a call right before the announcement was made, and we were, it was very hush-hush because, of course, you know, it, there are all these ruling, you know. You yeah, it was an earnings call. It was an earnings call. So you don't want to steal like, clear from the room. Either, yeah. So, of course, I hear that, and I think the worst. Like, the worst, we're getting the worst news possible when they tell us to clear the room, and John Landgraf is on the phone. That has to be bad news. So I was just delighted that the news was only that we were moving to a, a streamer instead of being on FX. Honestly, for me, I just want the most people to watch it, and... I, I love Hulu. I've, I watch a ton of TV on Hulu. It seemed like a great move for me. Uh, what was explained to me was they wanted some of their shows to be exclusively on Hulu to bring subscribers to Hulu. So I, I took it as a compliment that they thought that this is a show that would bring more sub new subscribers in. The, beyond that is definitely above my pay grade to, to comment on. Um, but it didn't really have any implications. We're still... All our notes are coming from FX. We The show is not getting any notes from Hulu. It is absolutely an FX show. So yeah. it's really just the distribution that and, changed. And it is going to be on a, a specific channel on Hulu that is branded FX. I did so not know FX that. Hulu, you, I so. just learned something new. I did not. I was wondering how that was. Because they kept saying FX on Hulu. I said, but won't people just think it's a Hulu show? Right. But it's kind of like when you think about Disney Plus and, you know, and there's the 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 login page and you see like Lucasfilm, Star Wars. This would be Pixar. all under FX on Hulu. Yes, there'll be an FX on Hulu. Station. And they've already started promoting a few of the like devs, I guess, because it's a little bit sooner. And and there's a very aggressive FX on Hulu bug that, you know, Chiron that they make sure is on everything so that you know 
It's not just Hulu. It's FX. Guys, on guys, Hulu. it is not Hulu. <laughs> it's definitely FX on Hulu. Nothing wrong with being a Hulu show. It's just not what we are doing. Now, we talked about your hopes to get this to sort of the audience that I'm sure we all think of as the central core audience for it, which is realistically a liberal feminist leaning audience. What have you been able to do to get any sense of how it plays to people who are not in its inherent target demo? And does that even matter, honestly? (laughs) For me personally, I would love everyone to watch it, even though you're right, that's probably our core audience. But would I love people on the right or people who, who think Phil Schlafly is a hero to watch it? Sure. And I think I think it's actually interesting if you watch the show that for some people she might feel like a, the, this feels like the rise of a supervillain, but there will be people watching who might think this is the rise of a superhero. And, and maybe that's okay. I, I like when people project their own hopes and dreams onto a show and if a show can be interpreted in different ways. From what I've been able to glean from the Twitter response when we've dropped trailers, there's a lot of preemptive hating on the show, which I just say, well, you got to give it a, you know, it's one thing to criticize a show once you've seen it, but to criticize it before you've seen it sort of discounts your criticism. You have to watch it to give an actual educated. But my guess is there's- We're talking about Twitter. Twitter, yeah. <laughs> I know. What are, what are my expectations? In 2020, yeah. In 2020, what am I thinking? So I think I think- Hollywood has this reputation as being liberal and anything to come out of Hollywood, it's assumed to be a hit job. And I would just say, you know, I think I always have a point of view as a storyteller, but I think we were fair. So I I would just say I hope they give it a chance. But you don't have, for example, that conservative uncle who you've sat down and shown two episodes to. I'm from Canada. We just don't have conservative (laughs) uncles in Canada. Our conservative uncle is like, maybe we shouldn't raise taxes. Like that's (laughs) that's the most conservative you get in Canada. But so I personally don't go to Thanksgiving (laughs) worrying about that in October. Um, But (laughs) but this interview has taken a very very Canadian turn. You're like, if we had known you're Canadian, we definitely would not have extended you an invitation. Um, but Wait, Dan, you're I'm Canadian. Not, my, my whole family's from Toronto. I'm, I'm. Oh, well, there you go. So you know what I mean. I totally know. But what I have you spoken mean. to like some of our writers do have conservative relatives uh, who are, you know, like, what is that thing? But it, it's funny. So I actually I, I spoke with a friend of mine's grandmother was one of the Schlafly Eagles. You know, she she was really active, and she's like, "Yep, every year I would bake the bread, I'd go to the legislature." She'd call me up, and I had a long talk with her, and she talked about this book, which is one of the sources that I read called "Sweetheart of the Silent Majority" by Carol Felsenthal, and I thought it was a very fair biography and a really you know probing biography. And uh, this, my friend's grandmother thought it was absolutely a wonderful biography that extolled Phil Schlafly. So my point being that you could look at the same material and depending what you feel about it, have a completely different response to it. But maybe I'm being very naive and the and the, and the hate mail will be a coming. <laughs> look, if, you, if you've actually been Twitter searching on this, you presumably know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back in tears. <laughs> Oh, um, before we wrap up, on a personal note, you are married to one of our former guests, Raphael Bob Waksberg, the creator of BoJack Horseman, for two showrunners to be in a relationship. I wonder, how does that work? Do you watch each other's shows? Do you give each other notes? What did he think of what you were doing? What What is it like being in in that together, when, especially at a time when he's got this big show that is so critically beloved and you're working on the same thing for five years? <laughs> You got like three shows done while I got one show done. Um, But you got Kate Blanchett, so I mean. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) For me, it's really fun to to be married to someone who understands what you're doing, who really understands when it's 11 o'clock at night and you're still in the office and you're in a fetal position because nothing is working out and they're not like, what is wrong with you? Get you a mental institution and actually can understand it's actually quite 
it, it's it's a very supportive kind of uh, relationship to have. I trust his opinion so much, and he's wonderful at watching and reading my scripts and and being a sounding board for everything and for. I think we met actually five years ago. So we met right at the beginning of this. So he's been on this odyssey with me. <laughs> I don't think he knows what it's like to be with me and not have this in his life. So it'll be interesting after April 15th to see what happens. Um, I think the one danger when you're when you're married to someone who's in the same business and literally doing the same job you're doing is to to leave the work in the office and to, when you get home, to not constantly be talking about work and to find ways to do other other things. I know. Why we're taking feel- tap dancing. <laughs> We've completely, that is our answer, is tap dancing. I mean, really? Yes, really. That's amazing. Please, please, <laughs> that, just... please show me photos. <laughs> tap dancing, but not ballroom. Why tap dancing and not ballroom? That is a great question. Maybe we should. I've, I, one of my great regrets as a kid was not taking tap dancing. And when I said that to Raphael, he's like, yeah, let's do it. And we started taking class last year and we are very bad. We are not good and I cannot show you any photos. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Well, um, wrapping up, we always like to end the interviews with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying? Aside from my presumed BoJack Horseman. Oh, I just, that was gut-wrenching. I just finished the series finale and I was in tears. So yes, I just finished watching BoJack. Wonderful. I also have to say I absolutely love Tuca and Birdie and Undone. It, totally unbiased opinion. But what I've just finished binging is season two of Shrill. Absolutely adore. A.D. Bryan is just such a winner. And that show just hits all the right endorphins in my brain. And as I told you, I'm watching Rami. I'm making my way for the through the first season. I just finished the episode, the 9-11 episode. And it's like nothing I've ever seen. I absolutely adore it. I'm so glad you guys do, too. Look at you, though, doing a good job of getting on brand with the Hulu show. No, yeah. God, I didn't do it on purpose, but that does sound like I'm chilling for Hulu. It's all part. It's being a good member of the family. But and you and you didn't say Succession or Fleabag, which we have heard repeatedly, and which I know I have to watch Fleabag. At a certain point, it becomes far enough after those shows have aired that people watched them months ago, and they just don't need to discuss it anymore. Maybe Is everyone saying Fleabag and Succession. They were back when you know back when we first started asking the question regularly. That would have been probably June or July, and yeah, that was that was everybody's answer for the first little while. We just did one like a couple of weeks ago and they said, well, sure. Okay, fine. (laughs) Anyway. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. Mrs. America launches April 15th on FX on Hulu. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. This week's new launches include Bruise Brothers on Netflix, the third season of Killing Eve on BBC America and AMC, Belgravia on Epics, the new season of Insecure, and the series debut of Run, both on HBO, of course, Mrs. America on FX on Hulu, as well as the second season of What We Do in the Shadows on FX. Dan, lots to choose from this week. What you got? So much freaking TV. Good gracious. I mean... Doesn't it feel nice to complain about too much TV again? Look, at least at least for now, there is still stuff coming out and still stuff to discuss. God bless. Knock on wood. May it continue for a while. So yeah, there are also lots of good things to watch in the next week. For example, Insecure, which I would say is one of absolutely the best things available. I've watched the season's first two episodes of the Issa Rae HBO comedy, and it is returning in fine form. Uh, I would say that that is a show that is becoming more and more confident in itself as it goes forward and continues to be a terrific show to watch. I think if you look out there, there's likely to be a fair amount of mixed critical response to run. 
I don't want to describe what the show actually is because a lot of the pleasure I got out of watching the first couple episodes was not really exactly knowing what the show was other than to tell you that Merritt Weaver is absolutely wonderful in it. It is it is a great star vehicle for her. Uh, Donald Gleason is very good also. And I don't want to spoil what the plot of the show or its mechanics are uh, because I enjoyed that. And I wonder if I had actually known what the show really was, if I might have enjoyed it a little bit less. Also, I've watched three episodes of the six episode first season, and I've heard from some people that maybe it doesn't go so well in the second half. Uh, our critic on that one, uh, Ingu Kang, uh, did not particularly like the show. Um, I liked the first three. I will continue to watch the rest, but maybe it gets worse after I stopped watching. So who knows? For fans of FX's The League, and I really like FX's The League and miss fantasy football and sports and all sorts of things, Bruce Brothers is sort of like The League, only about beer brewing. So it's another show about an insular subset of people who are really, really passionate to the point of being vaguely obnoxious about a particular pastime, in this case, beer brewing. It's not as good as The League by any stretch of the imagination. The cast isn't as good. The characters are significantly less good. And that's ultimately where I ended up being fairly disappointed by the show. It, it's not a good group of characters. They all need to be better characters, but maybe they will be in the second season. I laughed a few times. It's got some potential. So let's see. What else is coming? I've seen a couple episodes of the new season of What We Do in the Shadows. That is a show that I, when it was good in its first season... I loved. I thought it was a little bumpy in the early going. I thought the pilot was great. Then I thought the next couple episodes were less good. Then I thought it ended really strong. The first two episodes of the new season are terrific. So that's a thing to look forward to. And you just heard our interview with Davi Waller about Mrs. America. It, I, it's just such a good cast. It is such a good cast. And the production values are so ridiculously high covering this particular period setting that it's just such a treat to watch. It's a little dry here and there, but it's dealing with wonky political stuff. So I can understand why it would be. And again, the cast is so good. Kate Blanchett is fantastic. Rose Byrne is tremendous. Uzo Aduba. I mean, for heaven's sakes, Margot Martindale as Bella Abzug. Come on. It is such a good cast that even if you don't always want to care about the mechanics of the Equal Rights Amendment, and really probably you should because it's kind of important thing, you can just watch for the cast and you can be like, God, I can't believe that person's here. I can't believe that person's here. It, it is such a good cast that I've actually made mistakes at different points this spring in reviews, mentioning other actresses who I just kind of assumed were in Mrs. America, even though in reality they actually aren't, because it feels like really and truly everybody is and should be in Mrs. America, and it's really close. So, yeah, that's that's a lot of stuff that, that people can be watching, because, good God, you don't really have that much time. I mean, you know, you have to be Skyping and Zooming with all of your friends and loved ones, so don't forget to do that, too. Yes. Well, to hear more from Dan, be sure to tune in April 10th at 10 a.m. Pacific when Dan will be doing an AMA on Reddit. That would be Friday. So if you're listening to this early on Friday, that's 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Come, as the kids say, ask me anything. And for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's recently launched Now See This newsletter. You can subscribe by clicking on the newsletters tab on THR.com. Well, Dan... 
feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Killing Eve showrunner Suzanne Heathcote. Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. We're happy to hear from you with your questions, comments, and concerns. But as Leslie has already mentioned, if you got questions, really you should be sending them to us for future mailbag segments because we're going to need a lot of that. And you can reach us, as she said, at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Keep washing your hands. Stay safe. And until next week, Leslie. Stay safe. And until next week, Dan. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.